0: Welcome back to our study in the Gospel of Mark. Last week, Jim challenged us on our responsibilities to God and our responsibilities to government. Timely, wouldn't you say? I highly recommend that if you haven't heard it, go to our webpage and listen to the podcast or watch it on YouTube. All right, do me a favor. Please turn in, in your Bibles or Bible devices to Mark chapter 12 and let's, let's read the text together. Then the Sadducees, verse 18 Who say there is no resurrection came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, None of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. Ever meet a Sadducee? Yeah, me neither. That's not surprising considering that the last one died over 2,000 years ago. And even back then, there weren't many of them. It was always a very select group, you you know, like a a club for the very wealthy. If you lived in Jericho or or any city outside of Jerusalem, you were much more likely to run into a Pharisee than a Sadducee. They were a very select group with some very strange views. We'll talk more about them in a few minutes. And, and, And that's part of what makes this story so interesting. It starts with a strange question and it ends with a very surprising answer. This story presents us with an issue of profound importance. And that is, can we still believe in life after death? The Sadducees said no. Jesus said yes. A CBS News poll revealed that 75% of Americans believe in life after death. The most religiously observant Americans are most likely to say there is an afterlife. As a matter of fact, about 9 in 10 of those who attend religious services weekly are almost every week believe in it. This view is shared by 7 in 10 of those who rarely or never attend services. Americans of all age groups believe in an afterlife. The poll went a step further and asked if science will ever be able to prove that there is life after death. Here the response was even more overwhelming. 8% said yes while 87% said no. That leaves us in a fascinating place. Most people believe in death after life, Most people believe it will never be proven by science. Now, it is impossible to overstate the importance of this question. If there is no life after death, it means this, death really is the end. There is no heaven or hell. There is no reward or punishment. There is no resurrection of the dead. Now, get this. It also means there is no purpose to history. And if there is no life after death, then those of us who believe in Jesus have been profoundly deceived. We are, to borrow a-, a phrase from the Apostle Paul, of all people to be pitied the most. If there is no life after death, then we have believed a fairy tale, a nice story that has no real meaning. If there is no life after death, why pray? Why believe? Why live for Jesus? Now, sometimes I hear well meaning Christians say, well, even if it's not true, Christianity is still the best way to live. Yeah, right. Count me out. If it's not true that I want no part of it, I would rather do my own thing. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, bucket list type of things. I know some people say that Jesus Christ is so wonderful that even without heaven, it's good to be a Christian. Listen, if this life is all there is, then what we call Jesus Christ is just a figment of our imagination. To borrow some words from Shakespeare, Shakespeare's Macbeth, life's but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. So, is there life after death? Thousands of years ago, Job raised the same question. He said, if someone dies, will they live again? That's the question, isn't it? We all die, but then what? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust? Is that all there is? And that brings us back to our text, an encounter that took place two or three days before Jesus was crucified. It's Tuesday, or perhaps Wednesday of Passion Week. And Jesus has come to Jerusalem for the final time. Pilgrims crowd the city in anticipation of Passover. Because of his rising popularity with the people, the Jewish leaders have already decided to find a way to put Jesus to death. Now, knowing that his time is short, Jesus takes every opportunity to confront evil and to present himself to the people so they can decide whether or not to follow him. So, the first thing we see from our text is this, the Sadducees' insincere question. In order to get a handle on on the strange question they asked, we we need to know something uh, about the Sadducees. They were not the Pharisees. In fact, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were two different groups of of Jewish leaders who had no use for each other. The Sadducees came from a small group of aristocratic families that represented the the, the quote-unquote old money of the Jewish nation. As such, they they tended to congregate around the temple in Jerusalem. Side note, once the temple was destroyed in AD 70, no no more Sadducees. They vanished from history. Now, you could find the the Sadducees in in the priesthood and in the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And, And because they were sticklers for law and order, the common people didn't like them. They're really very legalistic. And because they collaborated with Rome, they had power. And influence. So when you think of the Sadducees, you need to know what they didn't believe. They didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, in heaven or hell. They, they didn't believe in, in life after death. They didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They didn't believe in the immortality of the soul. Now the Pharisees, well, they believed in all those things which was a major reason why the two groups didn't get along. In 21st century terms, the Sadducees would be like today's religious liberals who who didn't believe in the supernatural. It was a, a rich man's religion that offered power with no accountability to God. You live, you die, and that's it. And Jesus, the ultimate supernaturalist, was a direct threat to all they believed. So, in verse 18, we see that the Sadducees... Came to him. Now, the Sadducees are still upset about Jesus cleansing the temple because they controlled all the buying and selling there. And, and since they pride themselves on their intellectual acumen, they think they can finally trip him up. This is the only encounter that Jesus has with the Sadducees. Verse 18 Then the Sadducees, who say there is no re- resurrection, came to him with a question Teacher, they said. Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now Moses was the great lawgiver and was universally accepted and respected by all Jews, especially the Sadducees. Now this is a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 25 and verse 5, the part of the Bible that they actually believe. If brothers are living together and one of them dies without a son, his widow must not marry outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her and marry her and fulfill the duty of a brother-in-law to her. Now, this is called the Leverite marriage, Latin for brother-in-law, and is is what's behind Judah taking Tamar as his wife in Genesis 38 and also gives the background to the kinsman redeemer as described in the book of Ruth, which further ensured that, that Jesus would be born from the tribe of Judah. Now, the the Sadducees describe a very hypothetical and even ludicrous situation, thinking they had a question that Jesus couldn't answer and that he would look foolish even trying. This was doubly absurd since they they didn't even believe in the resurrection. Hence, it was an insincere question. By the way, this was their go-to question that they had used on the Pharisees many, many times with great success. Here's how they lay out the situation. Mark chapter 12, verse 20. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow, but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. The question everyone should be asking is this. Why do these guys keep marrying her? It feels like Russian roulette. After all of the brothers die, then the the woman dies too. Here's the question in verse 23. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since the seven were married to her. They were were painting a a problem, a theological conundrum. The, The question they ask is similar to, well, can God make a rock so big that... He can't move it. Secondly, this morning, we see Jesus' surprising answer. Jesus answers their question with his own question. Don't you just love it when he does this? Verse 24, Jesus replied, Are you not in error because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? He tells them plainly that that they're wrong, that they're, they're in error. In the Greek, it means to wander off course, to go go astray. Jesus accuses the theological elite of his day of error in their area of expertise. What they claim to know best, the Torah, they actually know least. And and please don't miss this. Because they misunderstand and misinterpret the, the Bible, they also misunderstand God. The two always hang out together. He basically says, your God is too small and impotent to be the God of the Bible. Jesus confronts their theological error quickly and clearly. He says two things. They didn't know the word of God. Even though they acted like they knew the Bible, they didn't accept all of it. On top of that, they didn't even understand the parts they did accept. Secondly, he says, they didn't know the wonders of God. While they believed that God created the world, they didn't believe he had the power to raise the dead. They essentially limited God by their own conception of rational possibilities. In short, they put God in a box. Now let's linger here a bit and point out that, that every error in life can be attributed to one of these two statements. Either we don't know the Bible or we don't believe in the power of God to do what he says he can do. Jesus then does something does some teaching by pointing out that that resurrection life is far different and better than this life verse 25 When the dead rise Jesus says they will neither marry nor be given in marriage they'll be like the angels in heaven With this one statement Jesus punctures their their proposition and takes the wind out of their sails did you catch the word wind He doesn't say if the dead rise, but when the dead rise. He simply states that physical and social relationships will pale in comparison to our relationship with the Lord. In this one verse, Jesus establishes two tremendous truths. Number one, he says this, marriage is an earthly institution. Marriage is designed to provide companionship, to fulfill the need for intimacy, and to produce children. Second truth, life will be different in heaven. We don't become angels, but we will be like them in the sense that we'll be sinless, glorified, and eternal. Like angels, we will obey completely, and we will worship wholeheartedly. Like angels, we will enjoy an existence that transcends earthly limitations. We will no longer procreate, and we will never die. Here is what I think we can biblically and safely say about, about heaven. We will exist as glorified bodies in heaven. We will maintain our our present and unique identity in heaven. There will be, in one sense, sex in heaven, because sex uh, identifies us as male and and female in terms of gender. And then lastly, whatever physical, sensual, and sexual, pleasurable, pleasure we enjoy in this life will be greatly transcended and magnified beyond our imagination in the life to come heaven will be a completely different dimension than the life we now know we will certainly remember our spouse i mean how how could ruth ever forget me but every relationship every single one we have here will pale in comparison to the relationship we'll have with jesus Here are a few more things we know about heaven. Really, really good things. Number one, there will be no sickness, sorrow, suffering, or sin. Revelation 21 verse 4 says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. To which my, my left hip says, thank you. Number two, we will be given new bodies and minds first corinthians chapter 15 verse 50 flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven thirdly we will be reunited with other believers who have died before us people will be able to tell it's you and you'll be able to recognize others only we will be perfected and glorified ruth will know it's me but she'll be thinking i I didn't get that guy when we were married You you looked a little bit different it's important to note that Moses and Elijah were recognized on the mount of on the mount of transfiguration. We also will be with Jesus forever. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 8 to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. While the desire to be reunited with loved ones will be realized, this will take a backseat to being in the presence of God himself. And And now Jesus brings the hammer down by crafting another question in verse 26 with a a quote from the the very section of scripture they subscribe to in in the book of Exodus. Verse 26, now about the dead rising. Have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the burning bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Now that Jesus has them thinking about the passage about Moses and the burning bush, he demolishes their their doctrine of annihilation. Four times in in Exodus chapters 3 and 4, God says, I'm the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Since the patriarchs are still alive, um, though their bodies are in the ground, there, there must be such a thing as the resurrection. Notice this passage does not say, I was the God of, but it says, I am the God of. He is the God of the living because he is the living God. Now, the patriarchs have been dead for hundreds of years, but God spoke about them in the present tense as if they were alive. Why? Because they are. Now, Jesus doesn't leave it there. He takes it up a notch in verse 27. Jesus says, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Oh, by the way, you are badly mistaken. Okay, let's finish with some application. Two questions that come directly from our text. First question is this, do we know the word of God? Jesus still asks us this question, are are you not an error because you do not know the scriptures? So how well do we know the word of God? The Sadducees focused on social status more than the scriptures, picking and choosing what they wanted from God's word. Does, Does that sound familiar? A LifeWay research study asked regular Protestant church attenders how often they read the Bible outside of church. Ask Christians. Well, 19% answered every day. 18% said rarely or never. 25% indicated they read the Bible a few times a week. And 38% answered occasionally. Interestingly, 90% of this group said, I desire to please and honor Jesus in all that I do. Let me just say that we will never be able to please and honor the Son of God if we're not in the Word of God. Researchers George Gallup and Jim Costelli put the the problem squarely. They said, and I quote, Americans revere the Bible, but by and large, they don't read it. Because they don't read it, they have become a nation of biblical illiterates. Fewer than half of all adults can name the four Gospels. Many Christians cannot identify more than, than two or three of the disciples. Matthew, Mark, Luke, Larry? Uh, I, I don't know. According to data from the Barna Research Group, 60% of Americans can't, even, can't name even five of the Ten Commandments. As George Barna says, no wonder people break the Ten Commandments all the time. They don't know what they are. Now, please hear me. I'm, I'm not out to shame anybody. Instead, I, I want to help you. Here is one of the best resources you can have to disciple yourself as well as an amazing tool to disciple others. This is Jim Hall and Susie Eller's new book, Seven Life Habits of a Jesus Follower. I'm using it right now to disciple two young men. I've had the privilege to disciple men for close to 30 years. And this is one of the best resources I've ever used. You will learn how to study the Word of God practical how to pray how to have fellowship with other believers how to generously give how to share your faith and and then in turn how to disciple somebody else if you're watching online and you want to order a copy or two or ten please call new heights office the number is on the screen the cost is ten dollars per book that's the cost of what it takes for us to make them a leader's guide is in the work email jim hall or my wife ruth epstein for more information about the leader's guide First application question, do we know the word of God? Second application question, do we show the wonder of God? In other words, has the information we've compiled led to the transformation of our character, of our lives? Do we know the passages and the power? They should go hand in hand. At some point, we must move from just learning the Bible to living the Bible. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 5 describes a group of people who appear to know it, but don't show it. Having a form of godliness, but they deny its power. Paul says, have nothing to do with such people. The Bible has a lot to say about God's power. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 10, Paul says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. The power of of the resurrection comes only to, to those who personally know Christ through the rebirth. The word know in the Bible has more to do with experience than with intellect, even though both go hand in hand. Please write this down. After knowing, we should be growing and then showing the power of God to others. Let me just conclude with this thought. For those of us who know and love Jesus, who have placed our our faith in him as Savior and Lord, Isn't it wonderful to think about the resurrection? As I get older, I think about it every day. You know, the writer of Ecclesiastes, Solomon, said these words. Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and verse 11. He has also set eternity in the human heart. God has put eternity in our hearts, and one day that will be fulfilled. That longing that can't be satisfied in our present state will ultimately be satisfied when we resurrect to heaven. That is... We're going to have a glorified body, perfect in every way, in form. And more importantly, perfect internally in spirit. We'll be perfect lovers of God, perfect worshipers of God, perfect lovers of one another. We'll have perfect knowledge. We'll be perfectly motivated to do perfect service, rendering perfect obedience and doing it all with absolute undiminished joy. And we'll do that forever and and never, ever have to take a deep breath. We'll never be weary. We'll never be tired. We'll never be bored. We'll never be discouraged. We'll never be disappointed, depressed, joy upon joy upon joy. And when we are raised, just so that we don't leave anything up to speculation, it says that when Jesus comes, he will transform our lowly bodies so that we will be like his glorious body. He's going to give us a form like his resurrection form and a spirit that is perfectly holy. And this is all by grace, isn't it? Thank you, Jesus, for your resurrection. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that we've had again today to worship and to praise you and to sing and pray and fellowship. And we thank you also for your word, which powerfully Powerfully opens up truth to us. We thank you that Christ is always on display in the Gospels. His majesty is seen. There's no one like him, no one. And the more we look, the deeper we look, the more carefully we consider every tiny detail of his life and ministry, the more wondrous he becomes, the more glorious. And to think that he calls us his own, I'm his son. And that he loved us and gave himself for us, that he might take us to heaven forever to be with him. We're unworthy of that. What an honor it is. What an undeserved honor for us. What a joyous anticipation. Father, and Mayor, gratitude demonstrates itself in obedience and love to you. And we pray this in the name of our resurrected Savior, Jesus. Amen.